you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Continue with our series uh, through this wonderful episode. Uh, <clears throat> this morning we shall consider from verse 14 to 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. But before we consider those verses, uh, I'd like to read the whole chapter, uh, then ask God for help, and then we shall go on. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <clears throat> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us go, let us go to God in prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you may open the eyes of our hearts to receive your word with meekness. We pray that you may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We are a feeble people, Lord. We cannot understand your word 
by our own intellect. We need the inner man to be strengthened through your spirit. And help us, Lord, that we may hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to your word that I may glorify you through the preaching of your word that I may preach your excellencies. Help my people as well, Lord, that they may be faithful to hear your word. They may, be, they may seek to submit to your truth as it is preached. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. Put away every distraction that may hinder and impede our concentration this afternoon. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted for we know the schemes of the evil one. Help us to be watchful and alert against distractions and, and, and enable us to see that your word is the most important thing preached here at this time. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this afternoon we... Sorry, this morning we come to verse 14 to 19 of Ephesians chapter 3 and we are al allowed to eavesdrop into Paul's intercess intercessory prayer as he pours out his soul to the Ephesian believers. Paul labored with these saints longer than any other group of believers and as he's writing this letter he's in a prison, confined. What is interesting, what is noticeable here is that in spite of his confinement, he prays, he intercedes for them. That there could be a lot of distractions in our lives, there could be a lot of hindrances. But nothing can hinder us from praying. We can break down this chapter into two, two halves. The first part has to do with Paul's reception of this new revelation that has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles. The tremendous privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the second part here has to do with prayer. He launches into a prayer. The first prayer is recorded in chapter 1 and this, uh, this time we come to his second prayer to the Ephesians. Many of us may struggle in this discipline of prayer. We can have a lot of excuses why we do not pray. We can say, my job is busy. We can say, I have difficult circumstances. But we see Paul in prison, in a dungeon, in a, in a filthy dungeon. And what he does, in spite of his confinement, is he prays. Paul was in a more difficult situation than us. He was in a place of great suffering and isolation. But he did not become full of self-pity. He did not lose hope. He did not lose heart. Rather, he was the one encouraging the saints. And he prays for them. A person who was in need of prayer. But in this case, we see he is praying for the saints. 
when our Lord Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross he prays he prays to God the Father you see prayer is a necessary instruction as Paul has been writing to these saints teaching them of these great mysteries teaching alone is not enough prayer is as much necessary as teaching and as your elders as much as we instruct you in the way in, in the way of the Lord we also pray for you because instruction alone preaching alone without prayer is utter failure you see God must bless the fruit of his word for it to grow and as you read your Bibles every day you should also pray that the word of God will grow because it's, a, it's God who grants the growth and this is a model prayer for us written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles my first question to you what do you pray for? what do you pray for when you pray? You see, the question there assumes that you pray. And prayer always reflects the priorities of our hearts. Prayer can either reveal the self-centered, selfish heart. Prayer can reveal the superficial, shallow heart. Prayer can reveal a God-centered, a God-saturated heart. And so I ask you, when you pray, what do you pray for? Because prayer expresses the desires of your heart. We have here Paul praying. And you see, we can describe to you how you should pray to God. And not really get anywhere. But when you have this example of prayer in scriptures, it is worth a thousand descriptions. This is a model, this is an example of how we ought to pray. He prays for the believers in Ephesus. And in a sense, he's not only praying for the Ephesian believers, he's also praying for all believers. This prayer should give us a pattern of how we ought to pray. And often, the reason we pray amiss is because we do not pray according to the scripture. And this morning, after all this message, a prayer for divine power. A prayer for divine power. And the first point has to do with the right attitude and the motive of prayer. The right attitude and motive of prayer. And then secondly, prayer for divine strength. That is in verse 16. The first point is, uh, the first point, the right attitude and motive of prayer is in verse 14 and 15. The second point, prayer for divine inner strength is in verse 16. And then thirdly, prayer for divine indwelling love. Prayer for divine indwelling love. That is verse 17 and 18. And then fourthly and lastly, prayer for divine fullness. That is in verse 19. So let's jump, let's jump into the first point, the right attitude and motive of prayer in verse 14 and 15. So Paul here begins this verse with the same phrase 
he begins this chapter for this reason we know from uh, from the beginning of the chapter that he digresses from verse 2 to 13 to speak of his ministry and to speak of his pastoral concern to his readers and then he picks up again in verse 14 and he begins to pray for these people you see prayer is in a position of extreme devotion and look at his attitude as he comes to pray he says for this reason I bow my knees before the father it was common for the Jews to pray while standing up but for Paul here he is overwhelmed by the sheer goodness and love of God notice also that his prayer is Trinitarian in shape you have God the Father he says I bow my knees before the Father I praise to the Father he prays to the Son so that Christ may dwell he prays to the Spirit that they may be strengthened through his Spirit in your inner being his prayer is Trinitarian God the Son, God the Father God the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is how he prays. He's expressing an attitude by his bodily posture. You see, our position during prayer communicates our attitude of the heart. There are many postures to praying. We can have people standing up while praying to show respect and reverence before God. We can have people raising their hands while in prayer to show total dependency, humble expectancy. You can have people lifting their eyes to heaven while praying. They are looking to God for help. But none of those postures is given more precedent than the other. When people bow, they express respect and submission. You see, the posture of body expresses our utter unworthiness to be in the presence of God. Kneeling is an expression of submission and respect in the presence of God. I'm saying, I'm submitting myself to God. I'm under his authority. I'm showing God respect. Paul can pray. Because in verse 12, he told us what? He told us that you have a privilege. That we have boldness and access with confidence to go to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he comes to God with boldness. Boldness does not mean brazenness. does not mean that we come to God in a nonchalant way. Confidence does not mean presumption. When we come to God, we come with, without fear of rejection, without fear of condemnation before God. And notice that he also comes with an attitude of reverence, with an attitude of dependency, of respect and submission. You see, the way you pray to God should, respect, should reflect the attitude of your heart. Our posture in prayer has to do with the condition of our heart. And you must avoid the danger of casualness. You must go to God the Father with reverence, with humility, with a sense of submission. Paul was bold and confident on his knees. Paul expresses boldness and confidence 
on his knees. And he says, the object of his prayer is God the Father. We go to God the Father through God the Son by the enablement of God the Holy Spirit. Then notice next why he prays. Notice his motive for this reason. That is the reason he prays. What's the reason behind the reason? For this reason. Because of, because of what? Because of everything that he has spoken about in chapter 2. You see, he comes to the beginning of chapter 3 and he says, for this reason, he's referring back to chapter 2. And then he sidetracks from verse 2 to 13 because he doesn't, he doesn't pray for that reason. He comes to verse 14 and he says, for this reason. You see, Paul is compelled to pray. And the reason is very simple. It is the great truths of Ephesians chapter 2 that compels Paul to pray. You see, the only place for truth in our life is in a place of prayer. Truth should lead us to pray. Because prayer is a way to digest, to assimilate, and to begin to expound the truths that have been expanded to us. That is why at the end of the service, we request you to meditate and pray. That God will help you to obey what you've been taught. You see, prayer expands these truths, and these truths become experiential, becomes a reality in the lives of God's people. Paul is praying for the spiritual good of this church. He's praying for a cause, for a reason. He's praying, first of all, he is amazed at how God has saved the Ephesians Gentiles. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, verse 11 to 18, he is amazed at how God has forged this union between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 19 to 22, he talks about how God has taken these Gentiles and brought them into the kingdom and made them a family of God and that he's building his church through them. He's essentially praying to God and giving thanks for what God has done in Christ. That should be our motivation to pray. If you survey at what Paul writes in chapter 2, he's provoked to pray. Is provoked to pray according to that purpose. That God may fulfill his purposes. And he's praying according to the will of God. And the scripture tells us that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And the more we study the word of God, the more we are able to pray biblically. And so therefore the, the truth conveyed in chapter 2 is the basis for his prayer. What is the object to whom he prays? He says, I bow my knees before the Father. He is praying to a God who listens to him. He is praying to a God who is responsible. And then he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth 
is named. What is he referring to there in verse 15? He's talking about the company of the saved people. What theologians have called the church triumphant and the church militant. The saints who are in heaven, the saints who are here on earth. And he's saying that all saints here on earth and are in heaven have been given a name. You see, the idea of a name means that you have a responsibility, you have dominion. So that if God has given us his name, we are in his kingdom, adopted. He has, given, he has taken us as his responsibility. So that if you belong to God, you have a name. But if you don't belong to God, he has no responsibility to answer your prayers and to take care of your needs. God has no obligations. Because you don't belong to him. You see, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's talking about the saints in the Old Testament, the saints who have gone before us, and the saints here on earth. And as we've gathered here in this small tent, and millions of Christians around the world are worshipping God this time, our number represents a very small fraction of the entire church of the universal church and most of the saints are in heaven so you have two parts of one family and we often sing of this in our hymns there's a hymn the church is one foundation and you sing and say yet she on earth has union with god the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is won. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with thee. The writer is speaking here of, as we've gathered here as a church, we not only meet here to worship God, but we have a real communion with the saints who are in heaven. What we are doing here at the same time is what they are doing there in heaven. Then secondly, look at the first petition in verse 16. The second point is prayer for divine inner strength. Prayer for divine inner strength. Notice the first petition there. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is praying here that the saints may be strengthened with power, with divine power in their inner being, in their inner strength. You see, the main element of prayer often is petition. You're asking God for something. And often one of the main reasons why it's difficult for us to pray is because prayer is a demonstration of our submission and dependence upon God. That's why we struggle to pray. We struggle to submit to God. We struggle to depend on Him. And so when you go to God, there's a need. 
There are petitions that you bring into him. But notice the standard to which Paul prays. He says, according to the riches of his glory. You see, when you talk about his glory here, we're talking about God's essence, his nature, his attribute, his perfection. When you talk about his honor and fame, we're talking about his glory. Paul is praying here that God may answer to the saints according to the standard of his riches. That God will give them out of his abundant riches. God will answer to them in proportion to the riches of his glory. You see, this is implying the infinity of God's resources which he has to give. And an illustration, it will be shameful for us Sorry, it would be shameful for a king to give the same contribution as a peasant. If the president was to come here and to give the same amount of contributions with a peasant, with a poor farmer or, or, or a poor man, we would say he has not given according to the riches of his glory. God, when you go to God, we're going to ask him to give us abundantly according to the riches of his glory. Out of his riches. His glory, of course, is the sum of all his attributes. What Paul is praying here is that God may give in direct proportion to the depth and the wealth of those attributes. You see, as a father, I cannot afford everything for my son. But I have a father who cannot turn away because he can afford my gift. I can go to him. And this is not talking about money. This is talking about spiritual blessings. God is the open-handed, wealthy father. And what an encouragement for us to pray. To know that he cares for those who bear his name. If you're his child, he knows of your needs. And he's able to meet your needs. And he has an infinite range of wealth. This is how we ought to pray. That God may grant us divine strength according to the riches of his glory. <clears throat> then he says, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So what is the inner man if we have to be strengthened? See, this is the part that needs to be strengthened. What is he talking about here? You see, the inner man is the sum total of what we are apart from the body. It is the non-material, the undivided essence of man. This is the part that is regenerated by God. And so where is the strength of the Holy Spirit directed? It's not directed to the physical body. It is directed to the inner man, the immaterial, intangible part of man, which has been saved, which has been redeemed. And this inner man is the undivided essence, the conscience, the emotions, the will, the affections, the mind. So why does the inner man need to be strengthened? 
the inner man needs to be strengthened because he does not have the power in himself to deal with the challenges that he faces. The inner man needs strength to resist temptations. The inner man needs strength to endure trials. The inner man needs strength to perform services to God. The inner man needs strength to understand scripture, to live the Christian life. And we see here that the instrumentality through which the inner man is given strength is by who? Is through the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. So how are you going to be strengthened to overcome temptation? It is through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit strengthening the inner man. And when the Holy Spirit strengthens you, there's more manifestation of his, his love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, joy, peace, patience. There's power in your life. And the reason why we have not is because we ask not. We don't ask for these things. We don't ask for power to, save, to serve faithfully. We don't ask for, for power to overcome temptations. And if you want strength in the inner man, we see the solution here is to pray and ask God to give it to you. And he's going to give it to you according to the riches of his glory, out of his abundance. And so, who needs to be strengthened with God's power? Who needs to be strengthened with God's might? Those who are weak, those who are disheartened, those who are faint, those who are discouraged. Those who go to him in prayer. You acknowledge that when you go to God in prayer, you're acknowledging your need and you're submitting to him. Those who realize their fundamental weakness. That's why it's often difficult to pray because we don't acknowledge that we are weak. So that sometimes God has to bring suffering and temptation and affliction for us to see how weak we are, for us to run to him. Paul is praying here that he may strengthen those who are weak, those who are losing heart, those who are almost given up, those who are wondering whether there is any good that can come out of this life. That we might recognize our weakness, we may run to him in prayer. That when we run to him in prayer, he works through his Holy Spirit to give us strength in the inner man. So that we are able to overcome the challenges that we face. You see, the Holy Spirit must strengthen the inner man. Divine omnipotence must strengthen our fainting weakness. When we go to God, we're not asking for ordinary strength. God wants us to excel in this strength and power. And often, sometimes, we have a skewed view of who God is. We don't have the right doctrine of him. But I tell you, the more you know him, the more you realize that you know very little about him. It works very ironically. The more you grow in your love for God, the more you know that you love him so little. The more you know this infinite God, the more you realize that I so I have not even scratched the surface. I know so little about God. 
And that is why you need to pray that the inward man is strengthened. Then we come to the third point, verse 17 and 18. We see a prayer for divine indwelling love. We see a prayer for divine indwelling love. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and length and height and depth. This is here talking about sanctification. When Christ comes to live in us, he begins to sanctify us. And he's doing so, so that we can be rooted and grounded in love. You see, the whole of your life, the whole of your Christian life is defined by Christian love. At conversion, Jesus Christ takes residence in us. He comes to dwell in us. Every converted Christian has Christ in them. And when Christ comes to live in you, He is also there to sanctify us, to bring us to maturity. And His presence in us is uninterrupted, His presence in us is controlling. His presence in us, He determines the direction where we need to go. He has authority over us. And Paul here is praying that Christ may take residence in the heart of the believer. Because Christ is already in these believers. And that He might manifest His pervasive, continuous, and controlling power. He prays here that Christ may be preeminent in every area of their lives. That Christ may dominate our thoughts, our affection, our will. That we may be able to say with a clear conscience, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is not my decisions. That you do not count one thing, you only count Christ alone. And Christ dwells in Every believer and every individual of the church. And Christ is Christ, the God of your life. And this kind of love we are talking about here is the kind of love that was poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of love that Christ has for us, that He died in our place. That we might be strengthened, that we may be built up we built up on the foundation of love and this means that we are ever growing in our love for God and in our love for one another you see if Christ is the Lord of your life God has his agenda in your life and his agenda is to conform you into the image and likeness of Christ if you do not have Christ in your life if you have not put your faith in him what you have is your own agenda. 
Paul is praying here that the saints may understand a greater understanding of this increasing greater love of God. See, love is the environment in which the Christian life begins. Love is the foundation and the soil in which the Christian lives. Love was the motive, as you see in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, that God predestined us. It says in, at the end, in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, love is the bedrock upon which Christianity rests. Love is the motive of our adoption. Love is the motive of our election. Love is the motive of his redemption by sending his son to die in our place. For God so loved the world that he sent. Love was the motivation. Love is the motive for regenerating us. Love is the motive for God showing us his mercy. And so love is not only the foundation, which we have there, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through, through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. That is the foundation. Love is the foundation. But love is not only the foundation. It says here that love is the soil that you grow in in your Christian life. He uses an agricultural term here, to be rooted and to be grounded in love. Love is the expression of what has happened to us in salvation. Love for God and love for one another is what every believer possesses. The fact that we are rooted and grounded in love, therefore we can comprehend with all the saints, he says there in verse 18, what is the breadth and, de- and length and height and depth. You see, the end product of this love is for you to grow in your love for God, in your love for Christ, in your love for one another. That God may strengthen you in a way that the very foundation of your life is love. Jesus says, one of the things that identifies Christians is their love for one another. John says, if you don't love your brother, you're not walking in the truth. Why? Because Christ comes to grow and to make his residence in you and to make you a more loving person. So are you weak? Are you short on love? Pray that God may help you to love more. Pray this prayer. Acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge your need for sanctification. Acknowledge your need for greater love. And this love cannot be manifested to your fellow brother or sister until, first of all, you see how much God has loved you. That love must be vertical first before it is horizontal. Again, I ask you, what do you pray for? We have to be very careful that our prayers are not shallow and superficial. 
when we pray in a shallow way, we are praying our own agenda. We are not praying God's agenda. Paul's prayer is to petition for these Christians that they may be rooted and grounded in love and that they may grow in love. And one of the reasons we do not understand this love, brethren, is because of our prayerlessness. The Bible says, you shall seek me and you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. This kind of love is a matter of divine grace. It's a matter of divine illumination. And that can only happen before God in prayer. This is how you can grow in this love. And so Paul lists these four dimensions of, his, of this love. And he says, first of all, the breath. Notice, first of all, that the object in verse 18 is not even mentioned. He says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? But the context helps, 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 helps us to see that it is the love of Christ that it's been spoken of here. That this breath of the love of Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son. That is the breath of his love. That this love encompasses all races, all people, all languages. The Bible describes in Revelation that all nations will be on the throne praising God. This is the love that is so broad that it encompasses all people. It doesn't discriminate all nations, all races of all the world. And then secondly, what is the length? So how long is the love of Christ, if you're wondering? This is a love that reaches eternity. It is for eternity future. Christ has loved us with an everlasting love. That is how long this love is. This love begins where? In eternity past. Even before we were created, even before we were born. And this love stretches into eternity future. That is the length of that love. And then thirdly, what is the depth? How deep is this love? This love is as deep as human depravity. It stretches into the pit of sin and hell and redeems us from it. So that it doesn't matter how far you are into the abyss, into your moral degradation. Christ descended and loved you. Brought you out of that miry clay. Someone may be far away from heaven. But Christ's love is so deep that it can subdue them, it can capture them from their sins. And then fourthly, it talks about the height. How high is this love? Christ's love reaches down to the depth of human depravity. It saves people and it elevates people. Christ is far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He is so beyond us. He is so far away from us. This love is so high. It surpasses knowledge. This love is so infinite. 
that human mind can never be able to fully grasp it. We can never exhaust it. But it can be known. It can increase. This love has no limits. And so I ask you, are you grounded and rooted in love? Are you growing in your love for God? In your love for one another? Because every true believer loves God. Why? Because God first loved them. You see, if there's no reason for your love for God, there's no love for there's no love of God for you. Because you've never known that love. But if you've known of that love, you be compelled to love God because you have seen the depth, the height, the length and the breadth of that love. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how do you know you're rooted in and grounded in love? You obey God. This love can be preached for years and it can never be exhausted. And so I ask you, what can you point in your life as being done in obedience to Christ? Are you rooted and grounded in this love? Are you able to see the degree and the measure of Christ's love in your life? We express our love for God when we love one another. When we keep his commandments. As we keep his commandments, we're expressing our love for him. And we're expressing our love for one another. You see, love is seeking the highest good of another person. And so I ask you, how do you know the highest good of another person? How do you know the highest good of your neighbor? You know it by keeping the law. God's law describes to us the highest good for your neighbor. How do you express love for one another? By fulfilling the law of God. Romans 13 verse 8. How do you love your neighbor? By not stealing from them. By not lying to them. By not killing them. By not coveting what they have. The law of God gives us the boundaries to which we express that love. That love is also positive. So that the Bible tells us if you see your, your enemy hungry, do what? You should feed them. If you then see them naked, you should clothe them. If we keep God's law as expressed both in the Old and the New Testament, we are displaying our love for God and for one another. And those who are truly loved, those who are truly saved, they are grounded in this love. They're the ones who are keeping the law of God. Our love of God constrains us, compels us. And how did Christ express this love for us? He expressed this love for us by keeping the law of God perfectly. By paying the penalty of our sin. Christ's love finds no expression outside the context of the law. His love for us is tied with his relationship with the law. That is why we never divorce love from the law. The way Christ loved us is by keeping the law of God perfectly and paying the penalty of our sin, paying the penalty of our disobedience to the law of God. And so if you are to grow in this love, 
and to understand the depth, the height, the length, the breadth, we have to look to Christ. That he paid our penalties. That he lived in obedience to God and to death. That he was obedient on our behalf. Do you realize that the sinful man has two problems as it relates to getting to heaven? First of all, for you to go to heaven, you must keep the law of God perfectly. But the natural man cannot do that. Even if he was to keep the law of God perfectly, he would still not go to heaven. Why? Because he still has to be clothed with the perfect righteousness. So that even if he kept the law, he still cannot get to heaven. Why? Because God is perfect. God is righteous. And for him to go to heaven, he needs the righteousness of another one. Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly. This is a love that encompasses the whole globe, encompasses all people, black, white, Hindus, people of all races. The love of Christ embraces the whole world. It's a love that began in eternity past in choosing us. It is a love that stretches to all eternity. Christ, though he was eternal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself before God, died in our place. And then Paul says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And the comprehending here is to lay hold of it. This is not simply an intellectual understanding. This is something that your mind needs to grasp. Your mind needs to understand the dimension of it. This is an experiential knowledge. This is not simply a personal intellectual understanding. This is a love that surpasses human understanding. Inexhaustible, unsearchable. We'll never reach to the end of it as we've sung that his love is as vast as the ocean. If you've looked at the ocean, you look at it and you think that that's where it ends. But when you reach there, what happens? You have to go further again, is it? And that is how the love of Christ is. That you cannot reach the end of it. I ask you, have you comprehended the great dimensions of God's love for you? For us to understand this love, we need to pray to God. Because Paul prays to the Ephesians that they may understand this love. It's easy for it to be abstract to us that we just know God has loved us, but we don't experience it in our, love, in our life. We don't feel it. We don't Get, lay hold of it. 
we only comprehend it in our mind, we only understand it in our mind. And so how do you arrive at this love? You need to read the word of God. You need to meditate on the word of God. You need to believe in the promises of God that he truly loves you. How does a husband and a wife know the extent of their love for one another? They know it by spending time with one another. They need to be in fellowship. They need to be in communion with one another. That's the same with you, with God and with Christ. For you to be intimate with God, for you to know him better, you need to meditate on him. You need to walk with him. And then fourthly and lastly, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may be wondering here that in chapter 1 verse 22, And verse 22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we are told already that we are the fullness of God. But here we are told that we may be filled again with all the fullness of God. We are told that the church is the fullness of God. But yet again, we are told here that we need to be filled. So how can you say you're already the fullness of God and then come up again and say, I'm praying that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How does that work? It is the tension that we live in, brethren. They're already, but not yet. That you have been sanctified, but you're still being sanctified. That you've been justified, but you're still being justified. That is what sanctification is all about. That you are becoming what you already are. It is not yet. It will happen perfectly in the future. You're constantly being filled to the fullness of God. To what will happen. And what a wonderful day that will be. That when we enter heaven, we enter into the completeness of God's purpose for us. And there's coming a day when we will be totally filled with the fullness of God. We'll be lost in wonder and praise and love. We'll be lost in the glory and majesty of God. Nothing can be compared with that here on earth. So that once, when we became united with Christ, it was like a drop in the ocean of what awaits us. And there's a coming day when we will have the complete inheritance of God's people. The very fullness of God will be our inheritance forever. <clears throat> Do you pray for this? Is this a priority in your prayers? That you'll be filled with divine fullness? You see, this is the highest pinnacle of this prayer as I end. This is the ultimate destiny of every Christian. That they may be filled more and more with God. That they may experience God more and more. 
that we may experience God more in our area of purity. We may experience God more in our area of character, in the area of morality, in the area of our being. Christ says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for what, what will they receive? They shall be filled. What will they be filled with? They will be filled with his righteousness. May you indeed seek him resolutely. But you acknowledge that Christ alone can satisfy the emptiness in us. And to know him, not only mentally, but experientially. And have an intimate knowledge of him. That we might experience him in a personal way. That we might know of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let us pray. Father, we pray that these things may be true in our lives. That these are the things that we may pursue. These are the things that we might strive for. Help us, Lord, to go beyond the physical and look at our spiritual needs as more important than our temporal needs. We pray that you may help us to pray in this way. We pray for your people, Lord, that you may grant them the strength with power in their inner being according to the riches of your glory. We pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they may be rooted and grounded in love, that they may comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the height and depth, that they may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.